What if there was a world where the Fae were real? Not only real, but had always been real. What if all the stories were true? What would that world look like? This week on Schedule for Launch, join me, Zach Walsh, as I welcome Neil from Brambleheart Games to talk about the incredible tabletop role-playing game, Fey Earth. Staying as close to the source material as possible, the Fey are threatening, powerful, and old. We talk research, setting, and history. Welcome to Schedule for Launch, a podcast to discover the projects that you may have missed. This week, I am very excited to be joined by yet another wonderful tabletop designer. Neil, thank you so much for coming onto the show this week. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about Fey Earth a little bit today, and we're going to mm-hmm. learn a little bit about you and how this project came to be. But before we really start digging into it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Right, well, I'm from, if you can't tell from the accent, I'm from Ireland, uh, originally <laughs> or, born and reared in Dublin, still living there. Um, I, For my bread and butter, um, I am a secondary school teacher. I teach okay. maths and science to teenagers. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, and when I'm not doing that, I'm either busy writing my very, very detailed 19th century alternate arts ttrpg um <laughs> or teaching people how to fence with long swords which is my other hobby really that's yes. exciting i yes. little fun fact right before covid started i had paid to take a couple hema lessons but i i never got the chance yeah, so. yeah. Now, i've been running a hema club in dublin for oh god about 10 years now we're one of the original clubs because like HEMA is our European martial arts is obviously a massive hobby across Europe but Ireland was literally like the last place it got to being the most western spot you know so you've got clubs in Sweden or the Netherlands or Germany that are like 20 20 25 years old whereas like my club is one of the oldest in Ireland because we were there from the start it was in only last 10 years or so that the hobby actually made it to our shore. So, yeah, when I'm not writing TTRPGs, I am teaching um, people how to fence from translations of um, 14th and 15th century German fencing manuals. That's so cool. I didn't realize it was that young, though. Like, in, the, the actual In, uh, in Ireland, yeah. Like, like, people have been doing stuff for years, but HEMA as it is now, the formal kind of, or semi-formal, sport slash hobby that we would recognize as even now really only started in like the late nineties. Um, okay. yeah, it was like people who had backgrounds and things like, um, historical reenactment or maybe sports fencing or in the U S I think it was a lot of LARPers, um, and mm-hmm. SCA, um, as well who were getting their hands on translations of the manuscripts. Um, historians and academics had been working on these, and suddenly, you know, translations started coming out, and these people who had backgrounds in fencing were looking at these translations, and I think I know what he's saying there because of their backgrounds in fencing. So then they were taking the manuscripts and developing their own curriculum and systems based off of studying these translations. But, yeah, it's only in, those, like, in the late mid to late 90s was when it really properly started to happen beyond 
a bunch of guys messing around with a random copy of an old book that they'd gotten, you know? The people started really kind of studying it and developing curricula and the likes. And, and as I say, in Ireland, it's about maybe 10, 11 years old. So so that's my other, that's when, I, as I say, that's like my, that's my exercise hobby, you know? Um, <laughs> so it's good. It's funny because you said late 90s there, and that's kind of when the the fantasy genre really started to pick up in the mainstream. So personally, I wonder if there's a correlation there. If like it's becoming a little bit more socially acceptable, people watch films with your swords and sorceries were a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, as I say, a big part of it certainly was the academic side of it because Mm -hmm. it is, it's not, we're not just making this stuff up. We are studying translations of manuals written by fencing masters in the, you know, 14th, 15th, 16th century. And from the academic side of it, those manuscripts were becoming accessible around the same time. So it might have just been a serendipity or maybe one did feed into the other. I would say certainly that the growth in the, the kind of resurgence of interest in fantasy in the 90s, things like Robert Jordan's books appearing um, would have definitely had people interested in this suddenly and then looking oh could i is there a way i could learn how to fight fight with these weapons which would have driven some of the early uptake of people into the hobby you know but you know it's kind of funny because it's like you know like the 90s you also had like second edition D and all the rest of that as well was happening yeah. and then you know uh, in terms of in terms of fantasy we had those terrible aragon movies you know and stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> you know Amazing actors like Jeremy Irons looking horribly confused and uncomfortable on screen, pretending to talk to <laughs> dragons and cast spells, you know? <laughs> oh, let's hope that remake's okay. <laughs> well, uh, at least it's, well, the, the, I'm, I mean, I never read the books. Um, like I'm four, I'm, I'm, I'm 41. I, yeah. So I'm 41. So I was, I was, I'm, I'm, I was like a bit too old when the books came out to really get caught in that zeitgeist, you know? Um, like I was in my teens when, when Jordan's books were coming out, I was that perfect age for that. And I made it through the first 10 books before I said, screw this and just gave up. <laughs> like, which is more than a lot of people in fairness, as I said, you like, yep. yeah, a lot of people didn't like gave up after book four or five, but no, I made it to book 10 and I keep saying, I'll go back. Cause they did say Sanderson did an amazing job finishing the series, but yeah. So yeah, I don't know, maybe, but, um, so anyway, yeah, that's me. When I'm not when I'm not teaching people hard sums or researching fairies, um, I'm hitting people with steel bars. <laughs> and it's that fairy research that we're actually here to talk about today. Yes. yes. So this this has been something that a lot of listeners may have heard a bit about because it's been popular in the indie circles. But Neil, can you tell us what is Fay Earth? So Fey Earth is my own creation. It's an indie TTRPG system, and it is set in an alternate 19th century Earth where basically every creature from folklore and fairy tale is real and have always been real and lived openly alongside humanity. So it's a world where magic has always existed and the Fey have always existed, living alongside humans. And um, the thing about it is what really makes my game different to other games that try to incorporate the fae into them is that i've really tried and as much as i can to be as accurate and faithful in my depictions of the fae in fae earth as they were in the original folklore in the original yeah. stories 
So what makes Fey Earth unique is that if you play my game, you're going to find a lot of creatures that you recognize the names of. Your goblin, your hobgoblin, your brownie, your kobold, and so forth. But they are completely different to what people think of when they think of a goblin or a hobgoblin or a brownie. Because my hobgoblin is based on the hobgoblin, which was a type of what I could describe as domestic fae, a fairy that lived in the home and would help out with chores and him, or maybe some gender. And they were from the north, the region of Northern England, Yorkshire and that yep. whole area. It literally means the word hobgoblin comes from the hob, meaning the hearth or stove in the kitchen. And they were believed to live inside the stove. That's where hobgoblin comes from, you know? Um, kobold was from German folklore, you know? And like that's, and, and the kobolds in my game are completely different to the kind of kobolds you're used to, your, you know, yeah. tiny little dragon guys with four hit points. No, 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 no. The kobolds in, in my game were, they're completely different. They are, I always use kobolds as my example because it's a great story. Is I think it's originally from Dusseldorf. I'm not sure, but it was a story of a kobold that lived in the palace of a nobleman. And um, in, in German folklore, the kobolds, they would help around with chores and help around the house. And you'd leave them food or beer as offerings of thanks. And provided you respectful to them, they would help you out. If you didn't show them respect, they could really make your life a misery, doing stuff, playing pranks and being incredibly mischievous. And um, they were always invisible, okay? And uh, if you gifted a kobold with clothes, they would then leave the house. So that's where, that would be probably where J.K. Rowling got the whole idea of, you know, the house elves getting their socks and stuff to freedom. And, and we don't just see that with kobolds. We see that in, in, like, house fairies in other parts of European folklore. Like, the classic story, the elves and the shoemaker, at the end mm-hmm. of the story, when he gives the elves the clothing, as thanks for what they did, they all leave, because that was a very common trope in European folklore. But in this story, um, the um, uh, a page boy or a servant in the nobleman's palace tricks the kobold into breaking its invisibility and revealing its true form. Because in the stories, the kobolds are always invisible. The kobold becomes so enraged by this, he rips the page boy's arm off and beats him to death with it. That's a little intense. But- <laughs> that is, yeah. So, so that is what kobolds were actually like. They weren't some cute little dragon guy with four hit points, you know? Um, and that's really, guys, at the core of what Fey Earth is about, you know? And, and it's funny because, and that's actually one of the reasons why when I originally started Fey because the idea of Fey literally, one day I was pottering around doing something, and this idea popped into my head of, what if what if we had a world in which all the Fey were real, and had always been real? Mm-hmm. How would that world be different? And that was, that, that what-if question was the that was where the idea of Earth came from. And when I started working on it, at the time, I was, I had gotten back into gaming. I originally started gaming in the 90s. Uh, my best friend in, in primary school, his cousins had taught him second edition, and he got me into it. And I played that for about, oh, I don't know, maybe six or seven years until I was about 15. And then when I was in my mid-teens, I stopped playing it because... Not I enjoyed it, but I was realizing I have nothing to talk about with my classmates because all I do is spend my time playing D and D, and when I'm not playing D and D, I'm thinking about D and D. So yeah. I was like, I was like, I need to get other hobbies. Um, so I basically took like a twenty year gap from gaming, and then decided to get back into it, um, mostly for mental health reasons. Actually, um, 
I would, I found that like my circle of friends had pretty much disappeared simply because I was in my thirties and life had gotten in the way, you know, yep. you know, friends get married, they get different jobs, they move cities, life get, gets in the way of things. Uh-huh. And I was like, crap, where the hell did all my friends go? So I was like, I need to make an effort. Like I'm not somebody who would be an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. I'm a fairly middle of the road kind of guy. I have my friends. Yeah. I go out for pints. You know, I I socialize with people normally. I, I have no problem going to a party where I only know the hosts and I can just chat to people about stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So I got back into gaming and I got back into um, TTRPGs. So I, and I did look at, I got looking at fifth edition, you know, having skipped three, 3.5 and fourth. And so when I got the idea for fair, the originally I was thinking, okay, I'll make it as, as a 5e supplement as a module, you know, mm-hmm. sell it on drive to RPG or something. And almost immediately realized I can't, this is not going to work at all because all of the creatures in my game already exist in 5e, but they're completely different. You know, they are completely different. So I was like, this needs to be its own TTRPG system. So I developed my own TTRPG system. Now, it's, when I say I developed my own system, it's a fairly simple D20 system. You know, mm-hmm. if you've played any D20 system, you can pick up the rules for this game in like five minutes, you know? And I would actually argue that it's better than other D20 systems because the maths is a lot simpler. Because my day job is teaching maths to teenagers, <laughs> many of whom struggle with numeracy, yeah. I made sure to make a system that was mechanically very simple. So when you're playing in Fair, the way it works is there's there's eight ability scores, and your score in the in an ability is the modifier. So if you have a fortitude of two or a dex of three, you're adding that two or that three to your fortitude roll or your dex okay. roll, you know? Um, yeah. You're not looking at a score and then looking up a table to see, well, what score does that translate to in terms of a modifier? And then you've got modifiers for skills, which is abilities that you have taken formal training in, like a weapon-based proficiency or maybe an academic skill like herbalism or something like that, you know? Yeah. And then you got your talents, which are like innate abilities. So like it might be something like you have keen eyes or keen ears or you have might or persuasion or seduction. And they're mm-hmm. simple plus one, plus two modifiers. So it is literally... Every time you try to do something in Fey Earth, it's an ability check. So you're rolling your D20, add your relevant ability score. Do I have training and some skill that might assist in this? If so, add the modifier for that based on your level of training. The more training you have, the higher the modifier. Usually at about a plus four, you're like considered a master in that skill. And then mm. do I have any other talents that would be relevant to this, you know? And that the talents are usually a plus one, plus two modifier. So it's all it's flat mods that you're adding yeah. to. And then it's just add those numbers, roll my D20, and there you go. You know? So yeah. so that so it, as I say, it's it's a D20 system. It's not all it's not Pathfinder, it's not 5e, it's its own system, no. but it's very simple. I, I'm mm-hmm. quite proud of the fact that the mechanics of it are very simple. You know, you, you very quickly will pick up what you need to add to it because everything is an ability check. There's yeah. only one type of role in the game. You're not asking yourself, am I making a skill check or an attack role or, you know, an ability check or some other, um, am I adding modifiers because of proficiencies or feats or, you know, it's like, no, 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 it's, mm-hmm. it's very straightforward and simple. I think that's a huge boon for Fey Earth because 
I have friends who want to get into something like 5e, which realistically has a, it's not overly complex compared to some games, but it's still a lot of numbers and their number literacy is fairly low for whatever reason. So something that's that simple as just like add the flat modifiers is a really great way to get somebody started on a very interesting game. Oh yeah, like this is going to sound controversial, but I'll say it. I do not like fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. I really don't. Um, um, as uh, and and yet again, it's like as a educator, as a mm-hmm. maths educator, it it's not a simple system. It's no. it's like the maths is actually not that simple, and it's something that really annoys me because I'll talk to people who play D and D. And they and I and they talk about games and say, "Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to try this sort of game because I don't want to put the time into learning a new system." Like mm-hmm. you've already spent hours learning a really, really complicated system. There are games out there that are absolutely incredibly amazing that have so such easy, super rules light systems. I mean, I, I know I'm supposed to be plugging my own game, but I'm going to plug another game here. One of my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite TTRPGs by the amazing um at black girl mage on twitter um it's get this wonderful game called no bump in the night okay the entire oh, pdf yes. is like 12 pages or something mm-hmm. and the rules are one page and it's like you, you're playing toys protecting your child from the boogeyman in the closet or the monster under the bed and it's i love it so much it's one of my favorite games you know and the rules yeah. are one page you know so when mm. people turn around and say, oh, but I really don't want to put it, I don't have the time to invest in learning a new system. I'm like, there are so many games which have such wonderful systems that are so simple that you could learn in five minutes. I yeah. would argue you can learn my game in five minutes because like when I made the game, I was like, the only games that I was familiar with was D20 systems from, um, from um, playing D&D. Mm-hmm. And I did briefly run a fantasy age game i don't know if you ever played yeah. that um uh, that so was my first ttrpg yeah i i have very mixed feelings about that system so um i have very <laughs> mixed, um they the, the mages in that game were just so crap um the yeah. magic system yeah <laughs> but but the mechanics the stunt mechanics in that game were oh my god they're amazing and mm-hmm. that was a 3d6 system so i was like my only experience was d20 and 3d6 you know, so I was like, well, which should I pick? And I did make a marketing decision. The single biggest CTRPG in the hobby is 5e. If I make a system that uses a D20 mechanic, somebody who already plays in a D20 system, i.e. 5e, yep. is more likely to try it out because it's familiar. Yeah. You know, if it's kind of funny because if I was actually making Fey Earth from scratch now, having fought, like I've been working on Fey Earth for five years. And I'm, I feel like I'm a much more experienced. Yeah, I mean, I'm a much more experienced gamer now than I was when I started. And if I was going to make it now, from a marketing perspective, this would not help me. But I would probably use a dice pull mechanic because I've really grown to love dice pull mechanics. <laughs> you know, I, I think yeah, I think it's an amazing way of running a game. So if I was going to if I was going to remake Fey Earth now, it would be as a dice pull mechanic. And I actually have a really fun idea. Um, if and when Fey Earth is eventually successfully launched in, in through Kickstarter in this one or whatever future ones I may have to run, and it's out there and it's published, I have an idea for a game that will be a fairly simple ruled-like game using dice pull mechanics where you play 
fae in like a fae wild fae realm type setting. Oh, okay. so this would be a high magic game, but using an open magic system based mm-hmm. off a dice build mechanic. Um, but yeah, but at the moment, I'm just currently trying to tell everybody about my Kickstarter and get them to back it so that we can yeah. successfully publish this game. Um, mm-hmm. Because yeah, as I said, like I've been working on it for five years and the reason I've been working for so long is because as I said, it's trying to be as accurate to the folklore. So yeah. I have spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours reading and researching um, things like, you know, translations of the first edition of the Brothers Grimm or other books on folklore um, Calvino's books of Italian folklore, um, you know, French folklore, Irish folklore, mm-hmm. which is there's a huge volume. Like yes, Ireland has is. some of the richest and most well-preserved folklore in all of Europe, and it's kind of funny because, like, as an Irishman, obviously, and as an Irishman who's also kind of into, uh, into neo paganism and history and all the rest of that, my knowledge of folklore is good. For an Irishman, like we learn all of them, the legends in primary school, the children of Lear and Fionn McCool and Sindranogan, all that we learn that in primary school anyway, you know, but so my, but my knowledge of folklore would be higher than that again. But it was only when I was talking to other friends from other parts of Europe and you're, and, and doing the research myself, realized so much of Europe, the folklore wasn't preserved. Like one of my friends from is originally from Switzerland, been living there for many years, and she's actually one of the players in my podcast um, series. And she played the character of Selena in our season one, which is just coming to an end. Season two will be starting in November. Very excited about that. And like she said, stuff, yeah, like they, they have some stories back home in Switzerland, but nothing on the level that we have in Ireland, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, and, and like I take it for granted as an Irishman. I'm like, wait, you, you don't know all of your stories? And I was like, no, we don't. You know, but as I that's part of why the game has taken so long to develop because you know I'm reading books or academic mm-hmm. papers by folklorists, by academic folklorists, as the basis for it. You know, it's like okay, we're going to start working on 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 dragons. I'll spend five six hours trying to find academic papers on dragon folklore you know yeah. or i'm or i'm reading tolkien's translation of um Sigurd and fafnir you know mm-hmm. um you know that like that's you know that's where i'm going to for my source material it's not like okay yeah. let's make a cool dragon it's like no 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 when we say dragon what are we talking about you know mm-hmm. um so so which is also then why like the fey in fey earth are so powerful and it was a problem from a game design perspective I do actually have some magical creatures in the game that are not based on folklore that were completely invented by me um, because I very quickly realized a single diminutive fairy on their own could easily TPK a party of players of level five or lower in probably three rounds. If you give that fairy the powers that fairies had in the original stories, you know, first round, they've blinded the fighter second round they've withered one of the limbs of the spellcaster so they can't use their arm which means they can't cast spells you know it's like you know mm-hmm. third round they hex the rogue with terrible bad luck so they trip and fall on their dagger you know it's like <laughs> so i actually had to create magical creatures 
that weren't going to TPK a party under like fifth level, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, so it's so it's, it's I guess a, a very much a labor of love from that perspective, trying to be as faithful as I can. But that's what makes it fun. That's what makes it interesting. Is that yeah. you know you're very quickly realizing that okay, this these stories are these stories are very old, but they're very different to the stories we used to from popular media and popular culture. Mm-hmm. So you had kind of brought up the party there and how dangerous some of these fake creatures can be. Who exactly are the player characters, though, in this world? Yeah, so the seven, well, I call them professions, but the seven classes basically in the system. you got two martial classes, your fighter and your gunslinger, and then there's a rogue class, and then there's four spellcasting classes. And there's the sorcerer, who are like the academic scholarly spellcasters. So they will learn magic by going to university and studying magic, or maybe being an apprentice to another um, sorcerer. Then you've got the mystics, who are the divine spellcasters. So they learn magic by um, becoming like a member of a religious order, um, if they're a member of an organized religion, or maybe they Mm -hmm. learn through like... And uh, maybe there's more of an ancestral worship practice, so they learn through their family. Then you've got the druids, who are like nature based. The druids in my game, because like I didn't bother trying to create an historically accurate druid, because that's impossible, because we have no idea no. what the druids' practices were, because none of it has survived. So mm-hmm. I've made up my own druids, and the druids in in my game, they draw their, they say that they they claim that they draw their their magical powers from nature. And they are often, they act as like the emissaries between humans and the Fae. So historically, every royal court would have had a druid in the court as their mm-hmm. advisor and ambassador for when they were in, for, for when the king or monarch was interacting with the Fae, you know? And then the final spellcasting class are the witches. And the witches are really fun and interesting in that they have access to one set of spells that none of the other classes have, the ritual spells, and and they have access to, uh, they can make different types of minor and major amulets that give them particular boons and buffers and, and benefits. Um, so examples of them might be, say, an amulet of the bear that like gives you extra strength or a witch's bottle to protect you against hexes and, and negative uh, magics and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. the ritual spells that they have access to, which are also the only spells in the system that use material components, and the other spells in the system only use verbal and somatic components, but the ritual spells and the amulets of the witch profession are all based on historical or archaeological examples of European folk magic. Okay. You know, so mm-hmm. if I describe, so they say one, one of the, say one of the ritual spells is, um, uh, first of all, it's Wanda Blasting, which is like you send out a beam of, like, of, of negative energy, it's an attack spell, and you're required to have a, a wand made of a piece of hawthorn cut into tree strips and woven around itself with wax and pieces of amber wrapped in a piece of red ribbon. There is an example of such a one in the Museum of Witchcraft in Boscastle in the UK that has survived yes. from the, I think, early to mid 19th century, you know? Mm-hmm. So like that's what I so you know so that's what I mean about it you know is, is, is that one is very specific, um with the other classes it was like I just made some cool spells um and that's the way it works um <laughs> you know um but like I I, I did um, another big thing about the game was I've tried to create a system whereby you can create highly customized characters so another mechanic that I have in the game is a thing called feats which are like special signature moves that you've got. And there's three types of feats. There's combat feats, spell feats, and social feats. 
um, and you use your feats to augment your actions. So the way action economy in the system works is um, you've got a major action and two minor actions in your turn. Now, your major action is your like action action. You know, you you, you, yeah. you attack, you cast a spell, or whatever. The minor actions you can use for a bunch of different things. If you want to move, that's minor action. You want to take a potion, that's minor action. If you want to say draw or sheath a weapon, it's a minor action. Certain firearms require minor actions to reload, for example. You can also save a minor action to use to have to be able to use a reaction later in the initiative order if you want as well. And you can also use minor actions to carry out feats. So, so like with the combat feats, a feat might be something like um, disarm or knock prone or mighty blow. So you add an extra die to your damage roll or a quick attack. Mm -hmm. So before you, before if you want to use your feat, you must have training in the feat first of all. And then how it works is you declare before you roll, I want to use this feat. So you're using your major action to do your attack and you're spending your minor action to attempt the feat. And then how the, to, to attack, you basically have to hit or beat the defense score of your target. Uh, every feat has a feat cost. Um, so to use the feat, you must not only beat your target's defense, but beat it by an amount equal to or greater than the feat cost. Okay, okay. so if you so if you're trying to hit an enemy with your saber and they have a defense of 16, and you roll and you're trying to use a quick attack, attack say, and that's like, say, a feat cost of three feet points, well, then you have to beat a 19 in your attack roll. You know? Okay. Because if you if say you roll a let's say you rolled a 17, you sit you hit with your saber because you beat their defense. So your attack still lands. Your minor action is spent, but your feet doesn't become activated, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so, so, so it allows you to have these synergy moves. I love the idea of, of, you know, the swashbuckling swordsman who had that cool trick they could do with their sword that they were famous for, you know? That's where the feats yeah. come into it. And if you're playing a fighter class, you get free levels of training in feats as you're going up. Um, every okay. second level in the game, you get a, you get a free level of training um, that you can spend on a skill, talent, or feat. Um, at every odd-numbered level, you, you can increase one of your ability scores. Now, there's rules on how often you can increase. So you can't increase the same ability score consecutively and stuff like that. And each okay. profession has primary ability scores, and then you get your secondary ability scores. And, you know, a secondary ability yeah. score can't be higher than both your primaries. But it's like, it's simple rules, you know, common sense mm -hmm. rules, okay? Um, but the fighters also gain free levels of training and feats. So they're not having to burn all their resources on training in the thing that helps them do cool things that are about their profession, you know? Yeah. Um, then for the gunslingers, they've got um, profession-specific gunslinger skills, like things like a trick shot or a sniper or um, mm -hmm. quick shots or like, so you're like, so your quick shots, you, you, you use your minor action to do an extra attack, you know? Um, and, um, and like the uh, uh, low levels of training in that, you know, your your minor action might have to be you, you can do an extra attack, but it has to be against the same target. And then it might be okay, it can be against a second target, but they have to be within two three meters, you know. And when you get to mm -hmm. master level, you can be hitting anybody within range, you know. And you got other ones like say arcane artillery, where um, if you have a magic score of one or higher, you can be tapping into that and adding it to your damage roll, so that you you have some of the damage from your gun is considered magical damage. And, like, there's another one where at mastery level, you're basically dead shot. And, like, they can be hiding behind a wall <laughs> 10 meters from you, but you can still hit them, you know? Um, and, mm -hmm. like, that, like that, the gunslingers gain 
three levels of training in gunslinger skills at certain levels, and then every even-numbered level, they could take additional levels of training in their gunslinger skills. Or they might decide, okay, well, actually, I want to learn, get training in another skill that's not specific to the class. You know, the rogues mm -hmm. are, are, are kind of an interesting one in that you got a bit of choices in that. When you get to about seventh level, you get you get to choose the type of rogue you want to be. You can be what's called a shadowcaster, whereby you learn access to spells from the sphere of twilight, which is spells of do it illusion, control of shadows, also things like teleportation and scrying. So you, you, yeah. you, you're developing a certain level of skill in, in those spells, or you take the Shadow Master, which is basically you get extra levels of training in skills. And the rogues also have class-specific skills. So stealth, mm -hmm. sleight of hand, pick locks, assassin, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. And then with and and then with the and then with the other classes, the spell casting classes, you've got the, the sorcerers have these things called the arcane enhancements, and um, what you get, which you get, which you can burn your resources in, or you get free levels of training in. So that allows you to specialize. So you things like um, a quick caster, so you can use a minor action to cast a spell from a specific. You 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 choose a sphere that you specialize in, and you can maybe cast a first or second level spell as a minor action from that, you know, or spell stinger. So you've got extended range or or enhanced recovery so you get you know the the magic system in in fair is a spell point mana based system you know and okay. the sorcerers if they have the enhanced recovery they can get back a certain amount of mana at a short rest and stuff like that you know mm -hmm. um the mystics they at fifth level will take a vow so you might pick say the vow of life so you're trying to like you're a really good healer trying to hurt people the vow of justice so you're like seeking out wrongdoers or you might be like the, the vow of righteousness so like your religion has a sacred enemy and you're trying to seek them out and defeat them or you could be like the vow of supremacy where you're like i'm gonna play a fundamentalist religious zealot and get everybody to practice my religion you know or you know yeah. so you got that kind of stuff and with and with that one you gain extra spells at fifth tenth and fifteenth level and other boons and provided you don't do stuff that goes against your vow you, if, if you if you start doing stuff that goes against your vow then you start losing those boons if you start and then oh it's up to, like it's not hard coded i don't use an alignment system but no. if you're like supposed to be like playing say a catholic nun and you're doing crazy stuff that the catholic church would heavily frown upon your gm might turn around and say okay you're kind of taking the piss here you know you're going mm -hmm. to start having trouble with your magic you know the druids, the druids are um, the way they get enhances is that um, the the of the spheres of magic. There's um, the four elemental spheres, and when you're a druid, you pick a, a favorite sphere because I, th I I personally felt every druid should have some level of bending ability, and that was just a decision I made in my system, and I stand by that decision. All druids are yeah. are, are are some level of bender, and so you get to be able to do things like you know you you obviously get to do things like wild shape and then like you get bonuses to your favorite elemental sphere, free spells, mm -hmm. extra damage, people can't resist it. Eventually you can change into an elemental of your favorite sphere. And when you get to like like super high level, like 17th or 18th level, which I know is epic tier, you can be like casting spells in your beast form or elemental form, which is pretty. It was funny, it was like, because in our campaign one, which just which is almost finished, I have two episodes left. Episode eighty nine going up sometime next week, and then episode ninety hopefully going up the week after. But I don't know because our final session was a 
climactic battle against the BBEG involving an army of ancient corrupted evil fae who were the followers of an ancient god from Irish mythology that had been locked away in the fae realm and his followers were trying to break his chains and release him. And then the other side of it was the Irish army because campaign one was set in alternate Ireland in the year 1849. Um, so that was a big fight. Mm-hmm. That was a massive fight. Yeah. We played for over seven hours. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, but, but, but it was the final climactic battle in which my players were trying to stop an ancient god from being freed from his prison to culminate the end of a five year campaign. Yeah. We played those characters from first to 20th level, which you know yourself, very few people in this hobby ever get to say they've done that. Yeah. Like, virtually no one can say, I played a character from first to 20th level. So, seven hours kind of sounds crazy, but when you put it in that context, it's like, yeah, no, that's mm-hmm. actually about right, you know? So, um, yeah, so that's, as I said, it's going to be interesting when that when when that eventually gets out. But um, when we were getting into, like, the final stages of that campaign, and, like, I had incredibly high-level NPCs, 18th, 19th level NPCs, like, one of their NPC allies was the Grand Hydrude of Ireland. And I finally had her appear in a fight. And like two rounds into it, I have her doing stuff and using her abilities. And I was, holy shit, the Druids in my game are OP. Oh my God. I did. I was like, <laughs> what is it about Druids that any system that a Druid exists in, they are OP? Yeah. I think one of the great things about Druids is that like everybody knows how scary the natural order of things can be. Yeah, yeah. Like, we're scared of natural disasters. And that shows yeah. in Druids. <laughs> yeah, it was like this the Grand Eye Druid, like as a as a minor action, was able to shape shift into an ancient earth elemental and suddenly had an extra 250 plus bo- bonus temporary hit points. Yeah. And because she was 19th level, could use all of her spells in that form. And I was like, oh my god, this is so OP. Now they were finding a 4,000-year-old elf who was super scary. And 4,000-year-old goblins, who in that particular fight, when I realized how OP druids are in my system, at 18th, 19th level, in that particular fight, that was a brutal fight, um, one of the goblins cast a madness spell on the party's healer, who's like one of the most powerful spellcasters in Ireland in that period, in that campaign setting, you know, because she's like 19th mm-hmm. level. Cast madness on her so that she taught all of her allies were her enemies. And she started attacking them. And then she cast Madness on the other spellcaster so that they so that, that spellcaster also thought that they uh, that their allies were their enemies. Um they yeah, it was brutal. They ended up using up two legendary magical items that they had traveled into the Fey Realm to get that they were saving for the final fight against the god and his army. And it was so yeah, like it was a brutal fight. So in a way it was like Okay, druids are OP, but at the same time, this OP, ridiculously powerful druid is just holding their own against these ancient fae. Because yeah. the ancient fae in my game are so crazy powerful. Unless you're like 16th level plus, you don't have a chance against them. Mm-hmm. Which is why if you come across an ancient fae and you're below like 15, 16 level, you treat them with an awful lot of respect. And you're very polite <laughs> to them. And don't piss them off. And don't do a Leroy Jenkins on them. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a lot of stories about people being rude to the Fae, so 
take yeah. that with a grain of salt listener. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, something that I really liked too, looking at some of the promotional material and some of the things you told me about it was actually how you built out the map of Europe, specifically the little write-ups on Arcadia and Jotunheim. You want to talk a little bit about those countries? Cause we haven't even touched them. No, we haven't. So currently, if we hit our, if we hit our funding goal and we publish the game, it will be set in Western Europe. And the reason it's set in Western Europe is twofold. Um, first of all, I'm Irish. I'm Western European, and this mm-hmm. game is based on folklore. So, yep. in order of familiarity, I am most familiar with Irish and Scottish folklore, Norse and Scandinavian folklore, and then general Western European folklore. So, I had to stick with what I know. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that was like the reasons why it's set in Western Europe, you know? Um, and, and then of course I was changing things around. So I have the two fey nations in Western Europe. There is the nation of Jotunheim, which is in the Northern parts of what would be Scandinavia. So the Northern regions of Norway, Sweden, Finland, as well as Siberia. So this would be the land that would have been traditionally where the, uh, Sami and Lap people would live. And in, and in Jotunheim is where you have your frost giants, your trolls, your dwarves, your Huldra, um, Nixies, all those kind of like Scandinavian Norse fey creatures, okay? And then you have the Kingdom of Arcadia, which is um, basically made, comprised of the Black Forest region of Germany, the Alsace Lorraine region of France, the Austrian Alps, and about half of Switzerland. So that chunk of country, of region in between, you know, north of Italy, um, east of Germany, west of France kind of region. And mm-hmm. there you've got um, dwarves, elves, dryads, musluta, goblins, centaur, you know, those kinds of things, you know? Yeah. And they're both incredibly powerful nations. Um, um, bec- uh, like, uh, the, the, the northern Jotunheim region is like, uh, in, in Fair Earth, it's, it's, it, for a long time was not isolationist, but sort of isolationist. It didn't get involved mm-hmm. in human affairs that much. And is slowly now beginning to get more involved in human affairs. It's trading more with human nations and the likes. Arcadia, on the other hand, was like a major hub of trade. So if you were a merchant and you're traveling across Europe, the quickest way to get from point A to to point B would be through Arcadia. Um, Especially because in Arcadia, you have these wonderful massive stone bridges spanning the, the valleys of the Alps built by the giants, you know? So you'd, you'd go across, as you're traveling to Arcadia, you'd pay the king's tax. Um, and at different, and, and when you would pass any bridge, the trolls would check, have you paid your king's tax? And if you hadn't, you pay it. And but once you pay it, you can pass safety. It's like the safest part of Europe to pass through at any period in history, because once you pay the king's tax, all of the fae in the kingdom would not, oh no, they paid the tax, so we won't touch them, you know? So you, so as a result, it's an incredibly powerful and wealthy nation. Um, and like historically in Europe, that region was the region that was controlled by the Habsburg dynasty, who basically controlled the Holy Roman Empire for about like 400 years. And yeah. one of the reasons they were so powerful was because everybody was paying taxes to travel through their territories to transport their goods. So in this world, Arcadia has taken over that role. Now, in the setting of the game, the game is specifically set in the year 1872, and the Franco-Prussian War has just ended. However, in my game, the Franco-Prussian War is different, in that it's not a conflict between Prussia 
and being pushed by Otto von Bismarck and Napoleon III, resulting in the overthrow of Napoleon III and the, the development of the Paris Commune and all that. It's rather, it's different. It's an alliance between France and Prussia because what happened was the ancient king of the um, Arcadian, ancient elven king, who ruled the kingdom for about 800 years, died of old age. Because the elves, the Fey in my game, they're not immortal, but they live for a long time. So they refer to humans as mortal because the human lifespan is considered so tiny. So the elves in my game have a lifespan of usually between like 900 to 1100 years, you know, about a millennium. So they live for a very long So he'd lived for, for 800 years about he'd ruled this kingdom, this really powerful kingdom in the middle of Europe, and he had now died. And this is at a time in, 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 in history when monarchies were still very much in charge of government. Like it was yeah. only in the later 19th century, 1880s and 1890s, that you start seeing reform acts where men who weren't landlords and property owners were now getting the right to vote, you know? Mm-hmm. So this the king of the most powerful kingdom in Europe, who had ruled it for eight centuries has died and his son has taken the throne. So Bismarck decides there's been a power shift here. Maybe we have a chance. What if we attacked him? We can take some of this territory. France can try to take back the Alsace-Lorraine region, which was annexed by the Fey as a result of human Fey conflicts centuries before. So France and Prussia attacks Arcadia. And because it's the in, in the 1870s and they're using la- later 19th century um, um, firearms technology and artillery technology, for the first time ever, the Fey army starts suffering casualties. They're not losing, but they're suffering significant casualties because historically, any time humans had ever fought in a battle against um, a Fey army, they are wiped out because you're fighting an army where their heavy infantry are giants and trolls and ogres. Their yeah. cavalry are centaurs. You know, their pike blocks and rifle blocks are dwarves. And that's before we talk about all the other magic things like your fairies and your goblins and all that stuff. So historically, they always got wiped out. But for the first time ever, the Fey are actually taking casualties and they're losing people in the war. And they're like, they're shocked. So the new king of Arcadia travels and climbs up to the peaks of the Alps and awakens the ancient dragons that have been asleep for centuries. And they come to the aid of Arcadia and the Franco-Prussian alliance is destroyed, and Napoleon III still dies as he did in our history, and Arcadia wins. But now the dragons have awoken, and nobody in Europe has seen a dragon in about five centuries, and they are looking for their young that they had left when they laid their eggs before they slept. They're looking for their young that should have hatched and should be around Europe, and they can't find them, but they're hearing stories of medieval knights slaying dragons. And that is that is the fair that you will be starting with your players if you get the book. There's been a just after this major conflict has ended, a huge war. There is now tensions. Some humans who are like now very anti-fey, other humans who are very anti-government, the monarchy, the bourgeois. You've got the because in the 1870s you had the anarcho-socialistic political movement sort of developing yeah. as well. And you have these ancient and incredibly powerful magical creatures that have appeared that nobody has seen for half a millennia. So that's mm-hmm. that's the world that you will be playing in when you play in Fair. Neil, I could see you're laughing. I forgot that my webcam was on. 
Yeah. And I'm guessing you got a very good shot on my face when I realized just how high the stakes were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and and actually, so our first campaign, which as I said, nearly finished, was set in the year eighteen forty nine in my alternate Ireland. Campaign mm-hmm. two is be is set in the year eighteen seventy two in France, just after the Franco-Prussian War has finished. And um, and my players who are making the characters, um, three of my players from campaign one, my wife uh, who played the character of Bronwyn Pritchard, who was the gunslinger of the party. My friend who played the character Selene of the party, um, healer, and my friend who played Olaf, the dwarf in the party, they are coming back. And I have a new f- and um, and one uh, another friend of mine t- uh, who played the um, source of the party will be coming back in and out as a kind of a recurring guest player. And we have a new player mm. coming into the game, which I'm very excited about. And um, their characters, some of them, like my wife's character, she's going to be playing a druid who was a she's a Prussian soldier who was fought in the war and deserted. And, and 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 trained and was trained in druidry magic by a, well, by a fake which called a Mosluta, which means moss person. German mm-hmm. speakers, please forgive my pronunciation. And um, they were a type of forest. <laughs> they were a type of forest fae. Um, that that they were they were from German folklore, um, more more in the southern kind of Bavaria region. Um, um, so much further south than Prussia, which was northern Germany. Um, but um, they had an awful lot of commonalities with the stories and folklore and tropes that are associated with figures like dryads from the classical Hellenic um, mythology and folklore. Um, so like, so the game will be starting in this exact time period where you've got, you know, characters who themselves or their family were involved in this conflict, you know, mm-hmm. and you've got these mixture of sentiments of, some people who are now very anti-fay and others who are now very anti-government. Um, in the in the in, actually, we talked about the classes, the professions in the game, but we didn't talk about lineages. Um, in Fay Earth, you can play one of two lineages. I don't use races because I don't like the word race. It is highly problematic. And as yep. a, also as a biology teacher, I can say it's highly problematic. But there are two lineages mm-hmm. in my system. There is the boring human human, which is your human, and um and it's like they're cool i actually like the humans in my system um <laughs> humans got a bad rep in ttrpgs humans can be really cool you know going back to the my, the much maligned system that i don't like that i the last time i did play a game of 5e it was on a friend's one shot and i played a human swashbuckling fighter and i had so much fun with it and decided if i'm ever 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 playing a game of 5e again i'm only going to play human fighters they're fun because I like there's like, variant ability. Uh, yeah, but it's like fighters in 5e, I think, are actually a much maligned class that are highly customizable, mm-hmm. more so than most of the other classes. Because yeah. with the other classes, you, you pick your subclass and that's it, you know? And then humans are, you know, a feat first level. So, anyway, but so the humans in my game, <laughs> you, what you get is you get additional, how you get your bones, your boons and benefits are you get additional um, skills and training. So, like, when you, in character creation, you get um, skills and feats based on your background, based on your social class and what your and what your family history was. Like maybe you were a lower class dock worker, or you were a mm-hmm. a middle class um, clerical officer. You know, now you you, you normally there's like two or three skills and talents, and you pick one based on your background. But the humans get to pick two, um, um, and that's how it works. And you get extra training in them. At, at, at higher levels. But the other lineages what are called the Fey Touched, which are they are humans, 
But they're yeah. humans who somewhere in your family ancestry, somebody had sex with a fae, <laughs> basically. So one yeah, of your ancestors was a true fae, and you have mm-hmm. that fae blood that's passed through your family line. So what that means is, first of all, you will have some physical characteristic that identifies you as fae touch. You, there's no such thing as passing fae touch, okay? So maybe you have slightly pointed ears. Maybe you've got green hair. Maybe you've got funny tinted skin. Maybe you're like two meter tall. Like um, my wife's character, Bronwyn, she was a frost giant fae touched. So we, all, we described her as a cross between Gwendolyn Christie and Tilda Swinton. Um, <laughs> so she was like two meters tall, had white hair. A brilliant blue eyes like a husky and her skin had this slightly bluish tint to it like you'd been in the RSC for too long, okay? Um, but she was instantly identifiable as fate touched, okay? Yeah. And the other mechanic that you get in is that you will get a plus one bonus to one of the ability scores based on your fate lineage. So for her, mm-hmm. because she was a giant kin, she got a, a she started with a plus one bonus for fortitude. Um, you know, if maybe if you're a goblin, it might be dex or charm or something like that you know or whatever you know and um, but you also you also start to give it a plus one bonus to your magic score so your magic score is the ability score tied to spell casting and magic so if mm-hmm. you're a spell caster it's the most important ability okay yeah. and you need to have a minimum magic of one to be able to use magic it's if you have a magic of one means you're born with the arcane spark also your magic score is the number of cantrips that you know so no matter what your profession is you can learn cantrips in this system based on your magic score Okay. Um, so mm-hmm. the other thing with the, so the Fae touched in, in Fae Earth as a, as a group, a tradition you're always viewed as in, in Europe anyway, as kind of outsiders by wider human society, not always fully trusted because of their Fae blood and because they would have these innate magic abilities and the likes. But interestingly enough, in this 19th century period that we're in now, where the industrial um, era is, is happening, you've got the industrial revolution, you've got, also got Magitech coming into the world. Now, Magitech mm-hmm. is in my game is mostly kind of a not mundane, but it's more of a background thing, you know. In that you've got industrialists who are asking artificers, "Can you make a furnace that's powered by magic and not by coke and coal, you know, or pumps that use, you know, kinetic magical powers and the likes, you know?" And you've got mm-hmm. things like, you know, like one thing in my game is like people say, well, "What cool change you have in my game?" The seas and oceans of Fey Earth are full of whales. And the reason they're full of whales is because cities are, their city lights um, that they use for the, for the streets are enchanted fairy globes, meaning that they didn't need to hunt whales for the whale oil for their city lamps. So there's loads of whales in the oceans for, because it's really simple mundane thing of, oh yeah, we just hire artificers to make enchanted um, fairy globes to, to light our streets because, okay, they cost slightly more than, you know, oil lamps, but you don't need to replace them. You don't have to pay for fuel constantly. So they actually, in the long run, are way cheaper, you know? So you got that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, but in the but in the setting of it, because you've got this, like, drive towards developing Magitech, um, you now have artificers who are looking for people to work as their assistants and apprentices. In order to work, in order to use magic, you can't learn magic. You must be born with the arcane spark. You must be born with some innate level of magic. And magic in mm-hmm. the world is rare. Humans, like human humans, can be born with magic, but it's very rare and super rare in Europe. But all Fae Touched are born with the arcane spark. So the Fae Touched are now, are now being sought out by artificers 
to work as their apprentices and assistants. So they're now finding that they're gaining this really important position in society that they never had before. And human society is having to start treating them with a lot more respect than they ever did before because they're like, we our industrialists and our capitalists want these products and we want lots of them. And you have this essential ability that allows you to help make these products. So it's yet again, it's like, you know, conflict is the driving force behind our narrative. So yeah. as your GM, you're, you've got other interesting social commentary and social conflicts coming into the game that you can play with as much or as little as you want, you know? Um, so it's just another aspect to the game. I love the world that you built. I love how in-depth it is and how well thought it is. So I'm very excited to jump into Fey Earth. Like, I, truly, I am. Neil, we're actually starting to run out of time, but I got two more oh, questions mm-hmm. for you. Yep. Yeah, we've been going for, the record's been over an hour, so I think this is going to be one of our longest episodes. <laughs> Sorry, once I start talking about my game, no, I can't okay. stop, you know? I, I, I didn't even notice until, like, just now. Yeah. But first question that I have is kind of asked on every single episode here, and it's, what advice could you give to somebody who is looking to make their own game, but they don't really know where to start? Start small and make your game about something that you're passionate about, not something that you think will sell. Mm-hmm. That would be my advice. Start small and simple, says the guy who has <laughs> written. Uh, 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 my word, I, I haven't done a word count in over a year, but the last time I did, I'd written over 100,000 words. So I think we're going to fight against with theses. I know, I'm nuts. But, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Okay? Start small <laughs> and make your... Small and simple is the best thing to do and make your game about something that you are passionate about because your passion is what's going to drive you because being an indie TTRPG creator is really hard. Yeah, You know, it's so hard. I mean, no disrespect to all the wonderful 5e creators out there, because there's some amazing creators out there. But if Fey Earth was a 5e module, I would have launched my first Kickstarter 18 months after starting, and I'd probably be on my third. Like, that's the reality. Mm-hmm. That is just it's... that is the reality of, of how the hobby works and how much that one system dominates the market. So if you're working in 5e, just do something that you think is fun and cool, and you think fills a void that you feel is in that system if you're going pure indie start small start simple it doesn't need to be a massive hardback as i said earlier in this interview one of my favorite games is 12 pages and it's wonderful it's amazing you know um so start small and simple and make it something you're passionate about because your passion is what's going to push you when the Twitter algorithm is burying your posts and you're like, why does nobody see my stuff? Um, why is nobody downloading my thing? That's what the passion is. And, and reach out to the community, um, especially on Twitter. The, the TTRPG community on Twitter is got some amazing people on it yeah. who really are constantly trying to help and support each other. Uh, I wouldn't have gotten as far as I had without the wonderful community that is on there. Yeah. I, I've said it before in previous episodes, the, Twitter community around the indie TTRPG space is absolutely phenomenal. And I mean, it. if you want a, a short list, go check out the other 60-odd creators who have been on the show, yeah. because they, they're all wonderful people who will give you a hand. Final question, though, for you, Neil. Where can people find more about you and Fey Earth? 
The main place is Twitter, at Earth. you know. Uh, <coughs> I'm also on itch.io, at Fae-Earth or underscore Earth. And then on <laughs> on, um, on on Kickstarter, um, we are not... Uh, so as part of being an indie creator, I had to create my own PLC this year because I'm publishing myself. So I had to create a company um, called Brambleheart Games. So um, my Kickstarter is not true fair; it is true Brambleheart Games. Um, mm-hmm. So if you go on, if you know, if you if you go on the Kickstarter and just do a search, if you can get the app to work on your phone, because oh my god, it's such a horrible app. It's a bad app. But it, I, I use the desktop <laughs> all the time. I don't use the yep. app, but um, um, use the desktop. Go into the desktop and and do you find the Kickstarter there? Beyond that, as I say, we're on. I'm very active on Twitter. I'm just at Fayert, and I do have a TikTok account, Faye underscore Earth. But if you go on, please be kind. I am an elder millennial. TikTok is a foreign <laughs> space to me. I do my best, but it is very strange. So, so that that is where you can find me. Um, oh, and I oh I do technically have a Facebook page as well. But Twitter is your best place. <laughs> Braver than I, venturing into TikTok territory. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> as always, audience. Those links will be down in the description below. And as of today, Tuesday the 18th, you still have about 13 days to go and back this game. Go out, check out Fey Earth. Like, it's so cool. And, like, the world's incredible. There was so much I wanted to talk about, but we just don't have the time. (laughs) (laughs) Neil, thank you so much for joining me on the show this week. This was sweet. I loved it. Thank you for having me. And audience, thank you for listening. Neil and Faye Earth are currently backing and they are scheduled to launch very soon. So go out there and support the work that he is doing because it is incredible. Until next time, though, take care of yourselves. I'll see you on the next one. Bye. Thank you so much to Neil for joining me on the podcast this week. Faye Earth is currently backing on Kickstarter and will be for another two weeks. If you like the sound of it, then please check it out and show Neil your support. If you want to hear more about Fey Earth, though, you can also hear the story from Neil's own podcast. It's named the same thing, and it's on Spotify. Links in the description down below. And thank you so much for listening, audience. Thanks to your support, we're reaching that 2K download mark. Unfortunately, we're going to be taking a bit of a hiatus due to some scheduling conflicts, issues with work, and miscommunications on my part. I don't have any guests. The problem won't last too long, but I'd rather have a couple of episodes lined up rather than sporadically uploading whenever someone comes through. This does not mean I am abandoning the show, though. I just want to make sure that we have a couple of people lined up to come on the show, and I can upload in a row so that you all know what's going on. And I just want to be transparent. So thank you all for your patience. And really, this time, I do mean it. If there is someone that you think I should reach out to, please let me know so I can get them on the show or at least offer them to come on. That's all from me now, though. Until next time, take care of yourselves. I'll see you on the next one. Bye.